Well, hey, good morning. And it's so good seeing you guys and being together, right? So, so good. Uh, well, yesterday uh, I had one of the most incredible experiences I have ever had in Cedar Lake and also one of the dumbest. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, yesterday we had what was called the Penguin Plop, which is there were over 100 people and you know a few other hundreds watching that jumped into Cedar Lake, which is currently frozen. I don't know if you've seen it. That mamma jamma is frozen, <laughs> solid. I mean, they had to cut ice to get in, and so uh, it was both awesome and crazy, and why would we do that? It was a uh, fundraiser for the Hanover School District Foundation, and so uh, we, because, listen, we are serious about local outreach, and we're serious about partnerships, community partnerships. You're going to see a lot more about that. And I also realized, you know, back in the day, they did baptisms in lakes and rivers, and I found out why. When you go under the water, and it's freezing, you're like, get me out of here! And then you come out, and you're like, hallelujah, Christ has risen from the grave. I felt the icy cold hand of death, it felt like. Uh, but uh, what an experience. Uh, it was great. So, hey, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we dig into the word right now. Father, we truly cry out to you, hallelujah, praise the Lord, Christ has risen from the grave. And because you have done that, we have life. We truly are no longer under the icy, dead, cold grasp of death, sin, or Satan. Jesus, you conquered all that for us. We now have hope, we have peace, we have fulfillment, contentment. Love, joy, and grace, all because of that truth. God, may we be enamored by it. May we be blown away by your glory. Father, I pray for revival in your church. God, I pray that we would be a people who treasure and delight in Jesus through the gospel. That we would see truly, Jesus, you are the name above all names and that you are the one above all, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. So unite our hearts to yours. Knit our souls to you. God, may we be passionate, urgent people for your glory through the gospel and treasuring you because you loved us. We love you because you first loved us is what your word says. So thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how many of you have either gone to Moody Bible Institute or you know someone who goes or went to Moody Bible Institute? Show of hands. Okay, the vast majority of you. If you're not familiar with Moody Bible Institute, it's a significant Bible school, Christian school with global influence, global impact, just up the road in Chicago. And it was started in, I believe, the 1800s by a man named, yeah, no, no trick question, Moody, D.L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody. And this guy, man, he is one of my heroes of the modern faith. I mean, he was an evangelist, he was a preacher, he was an author, writer, philanthropist. He would travel the country, travel the world, preaching at different locations, preaching revival meetings where hundreds, thousands would get saved, not because of him or his ability or his preaching, but because God used him mightily he was a humble man of God who allowed the Holy Spirit to move through him, through the preaching of the word. And so in 1872, he's in New York, and he's preaching this revival for several days, 
weeks, it's going on, thousands are getting saved. And you know, when you're just on a spiritual high, man, it's like nothing's going to knock you off that mountaintop. Just this experience was incredible. And, you know, he was spiritually energized, but he was also physically exhausted. He had been preaching every day for a few weeks. And so he says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to London, get a time of rest and relaxation, no preaching, no ministry, just to study and see some of my friends there. So he does. He goes to London, and as he's there out in the marketplace, out in the public square, a guy comes up to him who is a pastor of a small, itty-bitty congregational church, and this guy says, are, are, are you D.L. Moody? Are you Mr. Moody? Yes, I'm, I'm Dwight Moody. Would you please pray, please preach at my church this Sunday? No, no, sir, I'm sorry, but I, I'm not preaching on this trip. I'm sorry, I'm trying to rest. Please, and he begged him and begged him over and over and over. And finally, reluctantly, Moody says, all right, I'll do it. I'll preach this Sunday. And so he goes and he preaches on the Sunday morning to what he wrote later as he referred to as the coldest group of people I have ever ministered to. Now, I have preached in some places, but I have never preached to a people I would, I would say, boy, that was the coldest group of people I've ever preached to. But he did. He said they were cold. It was just their cold, dead hearts. There, were, there, was, there was no response, no reaction, could care less about his preaching. And so he, he's just wrapping up the sermon. He finishes up. He's like, I'm done. I, he decides to forego anything else. I'm going to go back to my original itinerary and just go back to rest, relaxation, and study and fellowship with other followers of Christ. But there's just one problem. He forgot that he committed to preach the Sunday night service. And he was a man of integrity. He was a man of his word. So he's like, all right, let me just get this over with. I'll preach the Sunday evening service. And so he did. And as he's preaching, same thing, just coldness, just not really receptive. And then something happened. Something changed. During that service, it seemed as if the very atmosphere was charged with the Spirit of God. There was just like electricity in the air. A hush came upon the people as they leaned forward, as they sit on the edge of their seats, waiting to hear every word from his sermon as he preaches from the Word of God. And at the end of his sermon, Moody does what he typically would do. He offers an invitation. He says, if you want to trust in Jesus for salvation, I want you to stand up right now. And so many people stood to their feet. And he's like, this, okay, wait, this, is, this can't be the same congregation I preached to this morning. So he goes, no, 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 everybody sit down. Everybody sit down. You didn't understand me. You misunderstood me. What I'm saying is, if you want salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, in Jesus alone, I want you to stand to your feet. If you are committing your life to Christ, that he is the only way to save you. And once again, not only did all of them stand, but even more people stood. And he's like, no, 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 no. So he lays out the fleece one more time. He said, all right, everybody sit down. He wraps up the service. He says, okay, if you're serious about this, I want you to meet me in this side room over here, and then we'll talk. And the whole church goes to this side room. I mean, it's packed to the gills, overflowing. So he lays out the fleece one more time. He goes, no, 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 no. All right, tomorrow night, if you're really serious, come back, and you're going to meet with your pastor. Not with me. You're going to meet with your pastor and more people come on a Monday night than the Sunday night before. Everybody brought friends, they brought others, and they come to hear the gospel preached. They're like, you gotta hear about this Jesus. And so Moody ends up spending 10 days in this little church preaching revival meetings, and hundreds get saved. 400 people join the church over those two weeks. What in the world happened? What changed? 
Well, Moody later found out that there were two sisters who, from that church, they were praying all day, and one of them was bedridden, she was paralyzed, and so she found out from her older sister that Moody was preaching there. She goes, wait, what? Moody, Mr. Moody of Chicago? I have read about him in the newspapers, and I've been praying that he would come to London and that he would send, God would send him to our church. If I had known who it was who was preaching that morning, I would have eaten no breakfast and spent the time praying instead. Now leave me alone. Don't let anyone in to see me. I'm going to spend the rest of the day and evening fasting and in prayer. And the great London revival of 1872 was started. And it spread like wildfire across London, across UK, across Scotland and Ireland. Thousands of people got saved that year. D.L. Moody later said, I'd rather be able to pray than to be a great preacher. Jesus Christ never taught people or his disciples to preach, but he taught them how to pray. What could happen, church, if we got serious about prayer? Turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, we're wrapping up this chapter, and only one chapter left. We've been in this for over three years, and it's been awesome. It's been exciting going through the book of Romans. What a mountain of theological, powerful gospel truths, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, we're wrapping it up probably in May, but here's the point this morning. We're going to be in verses 30 through 33. Paul is essentially saying this, strive together in prayer for one another by Jesus, through the Spirit, in the will of God. So, verse 30. And if you don't have your Bibles or your phones, your Bible apps, it'll be on the screen here. It says, I appeal to you, brothers. This is Paul talking. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Have you ever made an appeal, whether formal or informal? An appeal is a, surgent, a serious, urgent request for action. And a legal appeal is a formal request to a higher authority to reverse an official decision. And in either case, formal or informal, there is specificity to appeals. You are asking for something specific. Vagueness does not work in appeals. You can't go to court, your honor, I would like you to throw out my speeding ticket. Okay, great, why? Because I don't like it? That's not gonna work. You have to say something like, Your Honor, I request that my speeding ticket be dismissed in the court of law because of the admissible evidence I have according to Article 23, Section 4, Ordinance 15 of the state law of blah, 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 lawyer stuff. you got to be specific. And one of the things I love about the Apostle Paul is that he is a straight shooter. I appeal to you, I urge you, I plead with you, I earnestly ask you. There's no beating around the bush here. He gets right to the point. He's making his appeal, and there is a clear who, what, how, and why. So, let's look at these. What? Strive together in prayer. How? Through Jesus and the love of the Spirit. Who? On my behalf. Why? By God's will and for his glory. Let's look at the first one. 
what? Strive together in prayer. The key word in this entire passage is strive. He's not looking for passive involvement. The sense is to earnestly strain together with me. It's this Greek word, sunagonizomai, literally, which means with agony. It was this word that they used for athletes in athletic competition as they were training together for for the games, for the competition, and they would say to one another, sunagonizomai, strive together with me, agonize together with me as we train for competition. Back in the day, when I was in high school, way back in the day, farther than I'd like to say, uh, I played football. I know what you're thinking, well, this muscle-bound, muscle-clad behemoth before us, of course he played football. That's called sarcasm, folks. I was not good at football. I was terrible. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the games. I hated football practices. I mean, it was the worst, and I especially despised two-a-days. Any of you, any of you play football? You remember two-a-days? Oh, man. They're exactly what they sound like. Two practices a day, from 6 in the morning till 9 in the morning, and then from 5 to 8, and if we had a good practice, maybe 5 to 7. So for five or six hours a day, we're doing drills. We're hitting each other. We're running plays. We're, we're uh, training. We're doing conditioning. I remember we would do burpees. You guys know what burpees are? You know, you chop your feet. I'm not going to do one right now. But you chop your feet, and you get down on the ground, and then you jumped up, and we would do that dozens of times. Our coach would have us do barrel rolls where you have three football players and they are jumping like this over each other and then they get up and chop their feet and jump and jump and jump, kind of in a three-man weave kind of thing. We would push the sled, this heavy sled, as linemen all the way down the field and all the way back. We would do what were called ladders. We would get on the goal line and have a sprint in all our football gear to the 10-yard line, then back, then the 20-yard line, then back, the 30, and all the way down the field like five or six times, it was the worst. It was agony. We agonized together, but that's the thing. We were in it together. There was a foxhole camaraderie present among our team as we endured the struggle. And this is what Paul is saying, agonize with me. I love how the NEB translation says, be my allies in the fight. Be my allies in the fight. He's appealing, fight with me together in prayer. In fact, it's the exact word used in Luke twenty-two forty-four, when it says, "On being in anguish, in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground." Here's Jesus the night before he's about to be crucified, the night before he's about to bear the full wrath of his Father on the cross for us. And he's in agony. He's in the garden of Gethsemane and he falls to his knees. Sweat drops of blood, which is an actual medical condition, are falling from great stress. He's not looking forward to this, folks. In fact, he says, if it be possible, Father, may may this cup of wrath pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. And as he's praying, agonizing in prayer three times, he goes back to his disciples, who he told, would you fight with me in prayer? Would you agonize with me in prayer? And he goes back to them and what does he find them doing? Right? See, I, I, I don't think, I don't know that we struggle or fight in prayer. Prayer can be difficult. It is difficult because it requires time, it requires strenuous exertion, it demands rightful priority in our lives. Have you ever seen the movie War Room? How many of you have seen that? 
great movie, unbelievable Christian movie on prayer, where you essentially have these people who get in their prayer closet, they get on their knees alone with God, and they, they go to battle in prayer. They cry out to the Lord desperately, and God moves. God does something. I was talking to someone after the first service this morning, and he came up to me and said, you know, I have a prayer closet at my, at my house, but over the years, it's been filled with junk, and it's full of just junk. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to clear it out, and I'm going to get serious about prayer. And I asked him, like, that is such a perfect analogy for our prayer lives. We have prayer closets, if you will, in our lives, but it just gets filled up with junk and busyness and stuff. Folks, we need to clear it out and make room for God to do what God's going to do. Do we see prayer as a fight for one another? Perhaps we should ask each other, would you fight for me in prayer? Fight for me in prayer. Be diligent. Join the struggle. Be steadfast in prayer. Strive on your knees. So that's the what. Strive together in prayer. How? Through Jesus and through the love of the Spirit. Prayer is how we engage in the fight for one another against our enemy. In the name of Jesus Christ, through the love of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. In our Lord Jesus Christ, through the love of the Holy Spirit. So the first one represents how we have unity and authority by our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is appealing to them by the authority of Jesus, the name that is above all names, above every name, the King of kings and Lord of lords, that's who we are appealing through. There's a story of late in the Civil War where a Union soldier had some of his family members killed and his, I believe his wife had died and his, his children are still around, and so he goes to his commanding officers and he says, listen, I gotta go back to my family. Can I have an honorable discharge? Can I go back? And they said, well, I, I don't know. The war is still going on, battle's still going on. You gotta appeal to a higher authority. And so, this Union soldier says, all right, I'll go to the highest authority. He goes to Washington, D.C., to the White House. And this is the days before Secret Service. He goes right up to the building, tries to walk in, and the bodyguard's like, no, 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 no. No, you don't understand. I got to see the president. It's for my family. No, 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 no. He tries to get through these officials. He tries to get through these bigwig politicians. They won't let him pass. Fight as he might, try as he might, they just won't let him through. And so, despondent, he walks outside and he finds a park bench near the White House and he sits down there in despair. And tears stream down his eyes, down his face. And a little boy comes up to him, a young, young little boy sits down on the park bench next to him, can see that he's crying and says, what's the matter, mister? Well, son, I need to see the president. It's for my family, and I can't get in. And the kid says, hmm, come with me. And he grabs him by the hand, and he pulls him up to the White House, dragging him along, and they go right past the bodyguards. He takes him further. They go right past the elected officials. Takes him even further. They go past these big-wig politicians, and they go right to the Oval Office. The soldier is thinking, what in the world is going on? They go into the Oval Office and here's President Lincoln and he turns around and he bends over and he says, what is it, son? What could I do for you, Tad? And Tad Lincoln says, Daddy, this soldier wants to see you. The soldier won an audience with the president through the son. 
And folks, we, when we pray in the name of Jesus, we are appealing to the Father through the Son. Don't just pray in the name of Jesus, amen. You know, we, we append our prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen, like it's, you know, just something like, sincerely, Jared Bryant. Or, all right, time to eat, let's just get this prayer over with. But do we understand when we pray in the name of Jesus, we are saying, Father, I come to you through your son. Your son gives me access to your throne in the name of Jesus. That's the authority and unity that we have. So it's by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. But second, he identifies the ground of his request. This is the agape love of the Spirit. The Spirit empowers us to love one another. Paul is basically saying, because we are loved by God, because we are bonded together through the Holy Spirit, and love comes from him, pray for me. Pray for me. See, we have three entities, if you will, that hate prayer, that are against us. Our spiritual enemy, Satan, our world, and even our own sinful flesh, our own sinful desires, and they will stop at nothing. They are relentlessly trying to snuff out prayer from our lives. Oh, you don't need to pray. There's no time to pray. You don't have time to pray. You can do better things with your time. You have other priorities. Aren't you so busy? You're so tired. I mean, what does prayer really accomplish anyway? And all these lies and distractions and deceptions are being whispered into our ears constantly. We are engaged, church, in a real fight, an unseen spiritual warfare. And Satan's strategy is to get you involved in anything that will keep you from praying. Distracting thoughts, busyness, prioritizing other things, sleepiness. I, hopefully this is okay to share uh, with, with my, about my wife. But we, uh, <laughs> that's not a good thing to probably ask right as you're preaching when she's on the front row here. But we try to pray together every night. I, I really do believe couples that pray together stay together. I know that's a cliche, but it's really true. When you pray together and you agonize together as a married couple in prayer, there's something powerful about that. And so we will uh, pray together every night while we're laying there in bed, which is probably the first mistake. We should do it on the couch while we're still awake and then, you know, go to sleep. But we'll be laying there and we'll say, okay, do you want to pray? Oh, I'll pray. Or who, who, who wants to pray tonight? And there have been times, literally, where I'm praying, I'll be like, Dear God, I just thank you for today, and I go along, and then I just stop. And about a minute or two passes, and Sky will go, are you done? And I'll go, ah, I fall asleep in my own prayer. Man, the enemy doesn't want us to pray. Our flesh doesn't want us to pray. Our world doesn't want us to pray, which is exactly why we need to pray. The enemy absolutely doesn't want us to be in prayer because he knows the power of prayer better than we understand. And we see this in Ephesians 6. Go to Ephesians 6. You have this incredible passage about the armor of God. Paul is talking about this armor of God. You know, we have the sword of the spirit and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of the gospel of peace and uh, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth. And in verse 18, here's what he says. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also pray for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So he talks about the armor of God and then basically saying prayer undergirds the armor of God. 
it almost activates the armor of God. In World War II, the U.S. Army used Navajo soldiers, Navajo co-talkers, who they called the wind talkers. And they would get on their radios and they would speak to another Navajo person in another platoon and they would speak in Navajo and that would be the code, which was never broken by the Germans, by the way. And so as they're on the radios, as they're speaking to one another, trained to send and receive coded messages that directed artillery fire, there would be soldiers, platoons, assigned to protect them and ensure that these vital soldiers could talk to their authorities to direct the firepower against the enemy. And listen, friends, we are spirit talkers. In prayer, by the authority of Jesus and the love of the Spirit, we appeal to the Lord where to direct his firepower against our enemy. We're basically saying, God, there he is. Get him. Sick him. This is where I'm directing your prayers. This is where I'm directing your firepower, Lord. We have got to be in prayer. So we have the what. We have the how. What about the who? Well, Paul says... On my behalf. This is called intercession. And Paul asked for prayer support constantly in numerous passages in his letters. In fact, we just read one in Ephesians 6. He appeals for people, pray for me, pray for me. And here we see what a strong and impassioned plea, pray for me. Paul accurately predicted the difficulty he would face. He knew that he would be persecuted insulted, beaten, and maybe his own life taken, and nothing gets us on our knees faster than difficulty in life. It's in these moments we realize our helplessness and God's greatness. Our weakness and helplessness and God's infinite greatness. And in that space, in that gap, that's where humility lives. Prayer is an act of humility. You know, asking for prayer is humbling because it necessitates vulnerability. We don't like asking for help. Pride rears its ugly head. Pride keeps believers from sharing their need for spiritual help. It keeps us from praying or asking for prayer with this overinflated, overestimated sense of self. Prayerlessness is dependence on self. Prayerfulness is dependence on God. I think about this image of just, you know, imagine carrying someone who's injured. You have your arm around their waist. They have their arm around your shoulder and they're leaning on you, bearing all their weight on you. As you drag them to a medic, bearing their burdens, dragging them, pulling them, as they lean on you, getting them to the doctor where they can get medical help. Intercession is essentially carrying the wounded to the healer. We need the Lord, church, and we need one another leaning on each other, carrying one another to the throne of grace. Honestly, I wonder, why do we not have more prayer requests submitted on Sunday mornings. I know a lot is going on on a Sunday morning, but man, we got to lean on each other. Fill out those prayer requests, fill out those connection cards, whatever you gotta do, we, we, we have to take this seriously. We can't let apathy or pride or laziness or whatever the case is, maybe it's tragically failing to grasp the seriousness of what prayer is. Prayer is the awesome privilege of going before the king of all kings, the creator of all, right into his throne room right into his presence, boldly by the blood of Jesus Christ to make an appeal. This is what Hebrews 10 says, that we can go with confidence in a new and living way right into the throne of God, anytime, anywhere, wherever we want, however we want, whenever we want, because of the blood of Jesus. What an awesome privilege. 
I think of the, you know, what a friend we have in Jesus. Remember that hymn? What a privilege it is to carry. No. Is that right? (laughs) What a privilege to carry what? Everything to God in prayer. There it is. What a privilege it is. See, back in the day, if you walked right into the throne room of a king, you know what would happen? Or at very least, you'd be thrown into prison for that audaciousness. You needed to show reverence. And we get to go whenever we want through Jesus. Pastor Dan Jacobson at the HP campus said it this way. This is so good. He said, how many of us would increase our strength if we found our weak knees a little more? Man, that's good. So there is the what, the how, and the who. Now, what about why? Well, he says, by God's will, and essentially for his glory. Paul gives three prayer requests here, and actually all of them are answered. It's just not in the way he expected. The first prayer request, he says, oh, that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea. So persecution is expected, but deliverance is desired. Oh, Paul knows he's putting his life on the line. And sure enough, people are there ready to literally take his life, but he goes anyway because he's following the will of the Lord. Number two, that his financial assistance for Jewish Christians in Jerusalem would, that he had been procuring from the, from the Gentile Christians all over the regions would be acceptable. See, the Jewish Christians had a physical need. They were going through a famine. Times were tough. People were destitute, people were losing jobs, lives because of this famine that was so severe. So they had a need, they were hungry, they were starving, and the Gentile Christians in other regions could help. So what's the problem? Well, the Jewish people had some animosity toward the Gentiles. And Paul was a self-proclaimed preacher to the Gentiles. So Jewish Christians, they kind of gave him the side eye. They looked at him suspiciously. But Paul wanted so badly to see healing of this ethnic division. He wanted to see racial reconciliation. And he was hoping, praying that this financial gift would help with that. But there was a chance that they could even refuse to accept the money from him because they knew it's coming from these Gentiles. Which again is pride. Pride rearing its ugly head when we need help. And Paul, he desired solidarity between the groups. But in the back of his mind, he's thinking, but what if this further intensifies divisions? And so he says, pray with me about this. Third, he desired to come to Rome to see the Christians there, to see his brothers and sisters in Christ who he had never met, to see them for the first time. Go back to the beginning of Romans. Go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 Verse 9, we see kind of a similar prayer, a similar appeal. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. So, by the way, there you have the Trinity, the Trinitarian nature of God. That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. I'm constantly praying for you, he says. Asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. What's the longest you've ever gone without encountering another believer? Some of us had a taste of this in 2020. When we were going through quarantine, you know, two or three months, 
isolated, compartmentalized. It was tough. I, I don't know if you felt it, but I felt, as Pastor Dexter said, the sting of quarantine. I, I, I felt, man, I, I so longed to see my brothers and sisters in Christ again. I, I was hurting. I was longing. I think all of us, we felt that broken heart. We felt this in 2020. And there are some followers of Christ around the globe who rarely, if ever, encounter another believer in Jesus. So think of, think of Paul. He's never met these Roman Christians. He wants to see them so badly, longs to see them. Imagine how sweet that fellowship would be when he sees them for the first time, which this fellowship we take for granted. Paul so eagerly looks forward with joy to seeing them, to being refreshed by their fellowship together. He literally says to rest together. Oh, then we, we, we may rest together, just relax and enjoy each other's presence as we seek the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. But notice, notice the caveat, both in chapter 1 and chapter 15. He says, by God's will. Prayer must acquiesce to the Lord's will. When you submit your plans, your desires to God's will, there's this foregoing of self-centered ambitions. You're basically praying, Lord, if it be your will that this prayer request is answered, awesome, wonderful, thank you. But if not, if not, give me the strength to endure. May your will be done, not mine. Let me be okay with what you want, not what I want. God's desires and God's will always supersedes our own. And sure enough, Paul's prayers were, were answered. God answers his prayers, but it's not how he expected. He wasn't killed by the unbelievers in Judea, but he was beaten and arrested. The collection for the financial assistance was presumably accepted with joy by the Jewish Christians. We see that in Acts 21, but then his subsequent arrest would have raised suspicion among the Jewish Christians again. He does indeed make it to Rome, but not freely. He arrives there in chains through arrest and a legal appeal to Caesar and an arduous journey. Oh yeah, he ends up eventually in Rome, but it's in house arrest where he's able to welcome visitors. And while there, this is, this is great, in Philippians 1 we see that while there, he essentially starts a prison ministry and witness, witnesses to the guards and several of them to get saved. So here you have Paul and he's like, all right, you want to throw me in prison? Fine. I'll just start a prison ministry. I mean, this, the, the, the passion that Paul had for Jesus was unparalleled. All of Paul's prayer requests were basically answered by the Lord, yes, but. Yes, but. And isn't that how the Lord works so often God doesn't answer our prayers according to our expectations, and praise God, he doesn't. I never would have met my wife, Sky if he answered the prayers that I foolishly prayed years ago. Praise God, he doesn't answer our prayers according to our expectations. And even if the end is the same, the journey may vary. Warren Wearsby says, one of God's most painful disciplines is to give his children what they want when he has something better in store. Many of us have lived long enough to be thankful for unanswered prayer. Listen to this. Oh, this is good. Don't ask the Lord how I can get out of this. Ask instead, what can I get out of this? What is your will? See, prayer is the means by which God enacts his sovereign will. 
Or as R.A. Torrey says, prayer is God's appointed way for obtaining things. Man, that's cool. God, prayer is God's appointed way. This is the means that he has ordained to obtain what he wants. Now, does God need our prayers? No, of course not. He can do whatever, whenever, however he wants. But for whatever reason, God moves when his people pray, if it aligns with his will. Oh, I don't think you heard me. God moves when his people pray. I mean, doesn't thinking of prayer in this light, in this sense, does that just not incite you with vigor to pray with great zeal? Do we see maybe why Paul might appeal for prayer with such urgency? What if if God ordains our prayers to unlock his heavenly storehouses? This is why neglect in prayer is such a travesty indeed. His people, God's people, the church, folks, we must pray together. And if prayer aligns with his will, then it is always to his glory. In James 4, 2 and 3, James makes this clear. He says, you ask not because you, nope, reverse. You have not because you ask not. But even when you do ask, you do not receive, he says, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He's saying, listen, you don't, you don't have because you're not even asking me, but even when you do ask, you're wanting your will, your glory, your selfish needs, your wants, not mine. The goal of prayer is to align our heart with the Lord's So his desires become our desires. His will becomes ours. We want what he wants, namely his glory. God always answers prayer to the glory of his name. And so he concludes his appeal in verse 33 for prayer. He concludes his appeal for prayer with a prayer for them. He says, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. What a short and sweet prayer. Sometimes we get too flowery, too wordy with our prayers. This is a powerful and succinct prayer. When you are at peace with God, there's nothing else you need. You have everything you need when you are at peace with God. He is all sufficient. I think of one of my favorite passages, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And whenever I pray over someone, sometimes I use this passage where Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything. In other words, don't worry, don't fear, don't tremble, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, not in some things, not in a few things, in all things, in everything, by prayer and petition, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God will give you this peace you can't even understand, you can't fathom, you can't grasp, and it guards your heart and mind in him as his will is done, not ours. And so, church, we need to pray. We need to strive together in prayer through the power and authority of the name of Jesus by the love of the Spirit on our behalf for one another, by God's will, and for his glory. There was another man, you know, I mentioned D.L. Moody. There's another man in the 1800s in London by the name of George Mueller. And if you read biographies, you've got to read about George Mueller. Unbelievable guy, did incredible things in his lifetime. After he turned age 70, he still preached the gospel in 42 nations to approximately 3 million people. During his life, he cared for more than 10,000 orphans, provided 
education for 123,000 students and received $7.5 million of unsolicited funds from a multitude of sources with nothing but prayer and faith alone. He started orphanages in London when orphanages weren't even a thing. That wasn't even a ministry. He has such a heart for orphans. And there's so many amazing stories. They'd be out of milk or out of bread, and he'd say, okay, children, Let's pray. And they'd get on their knees and pray. And like a milk truck would break down in front of the orphanage. And the driver would be like, hey, I got some milk that's going to spoil. Could you guys use it? I mean, incredible things like that. Um, This is a man of faith who believed in the power of prayer. So I ask you, church, how's your prayer life? Is it stale? Do you feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling? May I suggest praying with tears, fasting, get a prayer partner. In fact, one of the things I want to do in the near future is organize a system where if you want a prayer partner, we'll assign you a prayer partner, men with men, women with women, and you can text one another periodically, hey, how can I pray for you? Or pray for me about this, I have this coming up. What about prayer journaling? Like Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, where he just lays out the scroll before the throne of God, before the temple, and just says, here it is, Lord. That's what prayer journaling is. It's basically saying, God, here are my requests. Here it is. Here's where you can direct your firepower and see how God moves. Watch how God moves. What about praying together? We're going to have a chance to do that here in a little bit and tomorrow night. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. This, this, man, this stings a little bit. The condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So the prayer meeting is a graceometer, and from it we, we judge of the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. The church, we are going to pray now. You know, today actually kicks off our week of prayer at Bethel, our annual week of prayer. It's not the only week we pray, but it's a specialized focus on prayer because we want to cultivate, catalyze a culture of prayer in our lives, in our homes, and in our church. And so there's several elements of this. First of all, starting next week, we're going to have a prayer counselor team every single Sunday after every service who are going to stand in the back and pray for those who need prayer. Every service, we need to be in prayer for one another. So if you're like, man, I, I need someone to pray over me, they're going to be in the back. They'll have lanyards that say, how can I pray for you? I would encourage you to avail yourself of them. Second, in the near future, I'm planning to lead our campus. I want our campus to fast together. Fasting is, it's, it's foregoing or sacrificing something that you feel like you need to spend time in prayer for the only one you really need. So if you're hypoglycemic, you're uh, diabetic, or you have health issues, and you can't fast from food, that's fine. You can fast from other things. There's a lot of things we feel like we need and that we prioritize, but we're going to fast together. We're going to seek the Lord in prayer together, church. We're going to get serious about this. This week in the week of prayer, there are going to be daily prayer prompts that are going to be emailed to you. In fact, go ahead and pull out your phone. Seriously, everyone pull out your phone right now if you don't have it out. And I want you to go to this website, Bethelprayer.com. Bethelprayer.com. Every day, there's going to be a devotional and some prayer prompts and uh, some prayer requests that we're going to pray through as a church. But also, secondly, you're going to see a button that says, take a time slot. 
During this week, we want our church, we want someone in our church to be praying 24-7 the whole week, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We want someone to be praying over our church, over our community, over our country, over our world. And so you can take a time slot, a 30-minute time slot. You can take multiple time slots. Let's do this, church. Let's strive together in prayer. And lastly, we're going to participate in prayer gatherings this week. Most of them will be online. It'll be Monday through Thursday at 6.30 over Bethel's main Facebook page on Facebook Live. But listen, tomorrow night, we're going to gather here, at, here at Bethel Cedar Lake, and we, we want you to come, and we're going to pray. We'll, we'll have, probably actually come at about 6.15, be ready, because right at 6.30, we're starting. And for the first 10, 15 minutes, I'll be online, and you're not going to be on the camera, so don't worry about that. And then we're going to spend another 45 minutes to an hour just on our faces before God together, striving together with one another in prayer. Will you fight in prayer for one another? Will you fight in prayer? In fact, I want to do this. And I feel a little like, take this seriously, okay? Don't, I see why D.L. Moody, when he told people to stand under their feet, he said, no, 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 I want you to take this seriously. I'm kind of doing that now. If you commit to fight for one another in this church in prayer, would you stand to your feet right now? Will you fight for one another? Who's going to fight for one another in prayer? Don't do it unless you mean it, folks. Let's fight for one another in prayer.